Good evening, everybody. This is your host, Huge Pop, from the Huge Pop Wrestling Podcast. We have a special guest tonight. He is the district manager of the Fit for Life in Fayetteville. He is an independent professional wrestler of all over several promotions, founder and designer of Fearless Fight Gear. His finishing move is Backpack Stunner. He has been with wrestling stables such as Team Fearless with Lodi. Our guest has held over 50 independent champions, singles, and tag team titles and is currently active wrestling in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Texas, and wherever he has the opportunity. Welcome to the show, Scott Matthews. How are you doing tonight? Good. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Hi, Kim. Thank you for jumping in. It's a cold up in Michigan. I can guarantee that. So, Mr. Matthews, I uh, have to say, man, as a kid, I loved wrestling, so I would imagine that you had that same passion as a kid growing up. You talk to us about your experiences as a kid, what you used to watch, what you liked, who your favorite ones were. Uh, so kind of, I guess a little off the beaten path, but I grew up in a little town called Port Angeles, Washington, up on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. And there was about a 30-minute ferry ride you take across the Strait of Juan if you can end up in Canada. Okay. So my earliest... Uh, interactions with professional wrestling was, of course, Stu Hart's Stampede Wrestling, uh, Portland Championship Wrestling, and then things like uh, NWA Pacific Northwest. So I grew up predominantly on like the the smaller wrestling promotions, armories, um, civic center, stuff like that. And I believe I was probably around eight or nine. Uh, we, we started getting the Mid-Atlantic stuff. And I didn't even actually even realize what WWF was um, until going to the VHS or the, the old video stores and, and seeing all the, the uh, VHS tapes of WrestleMania and stuff like that. So um, they were like my last kind of like uh, in, invitation, so to speak, to professional wrestling. So like I said, I grew up on the, the armories and, and, you know, those old school guys and um, yeah, definitely. Uh, fun, funny story. I actually uh, had one of those old Texas instrument computers you get from Radio Shack. Yeah. Plug to a black and white TV and had like a cassette tape <laughs> disc, uh, disc drive. But I used to unplug that thing and uh, put it underneath my bed covers and turn the volume all the way down and watch wrestling on Friday nights. Nice, nice, nice. <laughs> that's epic. That's, a, that's funny, man. Uh, my funny story I have with watching wrestling in middle of the night was Saturday night's main event. And I tell this story a lot. My brother who lived, lived in the same house, he's 12 years young, 10 years younger than me. And he was not supposed to come in my room to watch wrestling period. No questions asked. Well, he was like, Scott, are you watching it? I'm like, yeah, it was going to be Sid Vicious and um, Hulk Hogan. I think it was. And he goes, I want to come in. I said, dude, we can't. He goes, but he came in and I said, okay. And he goes, and of course, Sid Vicious goes, what's that? I smell. I smell a power bomb. So he goes, do it, do it. And so I said, did it. I picked him up and I power bombed him into the, the his bed, the, you know, and his feet kicked up and knocked off the lamp, locked the lamp cover off the ceiling light and made lots of noise. And at 11, 30, 12 o'clock, you can imagine how mad my mom and dad were. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I got my TV back for months. So, but yeah. Um, so during your growing up and watching, who were some of your favorite wrestlers that you would say yeah i gotta watch this over and over uh i used to really like uh i like brian pillman when okay. he first 
when he had just transitioned from the NFL playing with the Cincinnati Bengals over into professional wrestling. He was one of my favorites to watch, a stampede. Obviously, the heart, uh, the whole heart family, um, guys like Maka Singh and uh, some of the the Canadian guys that, that you didn't really see a lot of uh, in the States. And of course, you know, with Portland Championship Wrestling, you had like Billy Jack Haynes, Roddy Piper. Uh, so Piper's always been one of my favorites just because he's so good on the mic. And then like his his ring work was great too. I don't think he was one of those guys that never got enough credit for his in-ring work. And then of course, um, when I first got introduced to the WWF or, or now WWE, uh, loved Tito Santana. Um, he was one of my favorites. Uh, of course, the Ricky Steamboat, uh, Randy Savage match, one of my all-time favorite matches. Jake the Snake Roberts um, didn't really care too much whether they're heel or face, but if there's something about their character that kind of drew me in, obviously guys like the Road Warriors and you know uh, Ron Simmons, guys that were kind of like trendsetters of their time, okay. definitely appreciated those guys. Now that Piper was he as crazy back then as he was as when he got into WWE? Was he just as good? I think he was he was probably better in those days just because he didn't have the you know the big filter on him, so to speak. Okay. And like again, like I said, I don't think his time in the WWF really uh, told the true story of what he was capable of because his runs in like you know the Mid Atlantic area. Um, matches like the stuff he did with Greg Valentine, um, those are just matches that can never be duplicated again. Right, right. So do you mimic, um, in your craft, do you mimic anybody's style with what you do what you do now, what you did in the beginning of your career? I think it, it'd be safe to say I've been influenced by certain movesets, but I've never been, never had the, the, the mindset that I wanted to replicate somebody else because I've always believed in, you know, I can thank Ricky Morton for uh, sitting me down early on in my wrestling career um, and having a conversation with me. But I've always felt like conveying who I am. Um, and so not necessarily that I would say that I've replicated anybody, but I, I do think like that stoic, very straightforward character has always kind of been my niche. Okay. Uh, there's several guys that have been very like realistic character based, but you know, again, that when it comes to the character development, it all comes down to being yourself. You just turn the volume up to 10. Okay. And well, before we get any further, I want to talk, tell you, thank you for your service in the military. I appreciate that. I, I thank you for that. And, um, we touch a little bit on the military. Did did the military prepare yourself to where you are today? I, absolutely, because as a kid, I was you know I had the I was one of the kids that got laughed at in school. Like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a professional wrestler. Oh yeah, right. Everybody wants to do that, and you know even you know in places where it wasn't so popular, it was one of those childhood things. Um, the military really helped me because at the time where um, I did join the military, the opportunity to, to go to college and pursue, um, you know, college athletics was a possibility, but um, I lived in a foster home my senior year of high school and joining the military for me was kind of like that 
it was a personal decision that I made because if anything went wrong, uh, bad grades, got injured, um, anything that could have derailed, uh, you know, pursuing college athletics got in the way. The concern was not having a safety net. There was no mom and dad to go back home to. And so I made the decision to join the military because I, one, I, I was an adult. I needed to make sure I had food in my stomach, a roof over my head and, and job. And so um, the, the things that I learned in the military, um, the discipline and the uh, camaraderie and understanding you take care of the guy to your right and left, uh, definitely has been uh, a big part of my life, even after my time in the service ended. Well, thank you for that. Um, again, thank you for serving in the service. I appreciate you. Thank you, Dad, for being in here. Thank you, Dad, for serving in the service. Rick, how you doing tonight? Thank you guys for being in the chat. It's awesome. So what was the moment when you said to yourself and family that wrestling is what you want to do for your career? What was that moment? So I, um, the one thing that I didn't do as a kid, I never got the chance to go to any live events. Huh? And so uh, the first live event I went to was 1997. Uh, there was a 1-800-Collect WrestleSlam tour that was traveling around the military bases. Huh? And um, Greg Valentine was on that show. A guy huh? named Toby, uh, he did some stuff with PG-13 when they were at WCW, uh, mm -hmm. went through the plant. He was on that show, Christopher Daniels. Uh, huh? Rikishi when he was doing the Sultan gimmick, All right. he was on that show. And um, that was my first live event that I went to. And, you know, to go full circle, um, you know, my time with TNA, uh, Christopher Daniels, uh, AJ Styles, Elix Skipper, um, even though I wasn't on a contract, anytime I went down there for, for TV, I always had a room to stay in. Um, they took care of me, but Pretty much everybody I saw in that first that first live event that I went to has had some sort of impact on my professional career, okay. whether I've become friends with them or I've shared the ring with them or just built a relationship over time with them. So that was, you know, a, a pretty big opportunity for me. And then I went to a show when I was stationed at Fort Drum, New York, after I left Fort Campbell and I went to another live show and King Kalua was on that show. And he was one of the names. Uh, King Kong Bunny was also on that show, too. Uh, but talking to Kalua at the, the merch tables at intermission, I was getting ready to, to be assigned down here at, at, at Fort Bragg, now Fort Liberty. And I asked him, I said, hey, are there any, like, wrestling schools? Because um, I'd kind of, like, done some research, research and kind of got the ins and outs of what you needed to do to step into that realm. And uh, I figured, you know, I'd go to wrestling school, learn the business, maybe, you know, do shows on the weekend or whatever while I was still on active duty. But definitely um, right around 1998, 99, where I was like, I think I can do this. Like I said, I got assigned here to, to now Fort Liberty, which back then was Fort Bragg, and um, was fortunate enough to find a school uh, not far from where I was staying. That's where I got my, my first break in wrestling. Um, but it's just one of those things where I just, you know, my intent in joining the military, I plan on being a career soldier, huh? but then I got to that point where I realized, like, I don't want to be one of those guys that 
says, I wish I would have, or what if? Mm-hmm. And so I took a gamble and, you know, I rolled the dice and decided I was going to give professional wrestling a shot because like I said, I didn't want to miss out on the opportunity. That one thing I said, I always wanted to do right. so that somewhere, somewhere down the road, I'd be disappointed in myself for not taking the, the chance. Rick says he interviewed Kalua last year. Rick's a, Rick is another um, podcast creator, wrestling podcast creator. Rick is uh, also, he has us on a radio station in North um, Connecticut. Yeah, so thank you for Rick that. And um, so, yeah. Um, so training schools, did you, you, you said you did your research and everything like that. So what training school did you finally go to and who was your trainers in that school? So I started out at a school called Ringtime. Um, Professional Wrestling Training Center, and I got there at just the perfect time because Lodi and Toad were actually working with another guy that lived in Fayetteville, getting him ready for some dark matches and some opportunities, and so they were spending a bunch of extra time there at the the training center, and um, my training partner, um, Ollie Steele, who I broke into the business with, um, we, we actually got ourselves in a little bit of a bind. Uh, we had a roommate that wasn't paying that we were giving our rent money to, but he was keeping the rent. And so we ended up getting evicted. Well, we, the guys at the wrestling school, actually there was a room up above the, the ring. And so we were, we stored our stuff up above the ring and we slept in the ring at night. Oh, wow. And the cool thing about it was, is like I said, Lodi and Toad were coming in to work with this other guy and we were always there. So we just jumped in on the training and that led to us uh, meeting C.W. Anderson and then C.W. started coming to the school and working with us. And then there was a bunch of wrestling politics and drama going on. And he's like, look, I've got a, a training center, you know, a few miles down the road in a, a town called Newton Grove. I want you guys to start coming down and working with me. So we left ring time and went and trained exclusively with C.W. at his school. And we would go do shows Friday, Saturday night. And the one rule was, I don't care where you work Friday, Saturday, but Sunday at 12 o'clock, this is where you're going to be. So there were plenty of nights where we'd drive down to Georgia and then drive past the house to get the training on Sunday just to be there on time for practice. So, gotcha. um, But yeah, CW uh, definitely put the finishing touches on us and um, really gave us the tools that we needed to, to go to the, the next level, so to speak, when it comes to professional wrestling. So were you, would you say Toad and uh, C-Dub and Lodi are pretty much your best friends in the business and uh, your go-tos if you wanted to, if you need something, advice, or if you just need to talk? Um, you know, I don't see C-Dub and, and Toad much anymore, but Lodi and I formed a bond because, like I said, you know, roughly around, you know, somewhere 2005-ish, we started uh, – trying to do a tag team thing and and really just have spent so much time on the road together he's he's always going to be someone that i consider beyond friends he's a, he's a brother to me right. um you know the good thing about at the time that we were training at ring time also caprice coleman uh was coming down there and he was just you know he'd done some stuff with omega but still trying to you know kind of make his name and and so we got to spend a lot of time with Caprice and develop a relationship with Caprice. But, uh, 
definitely if I were to, to name a couple guys that I've just got like a lifelong bond with because of professional wrestling, it would be Lodi, Caprice, um, of course, my training partner, Ollie Steele, and a few other guys here and there. Awesome, man. Um, I get the chance to uh, interview Caprice, I think, in two weeks or next week, maybe. I don't know. Um, can you share some memorable moments of your early career and like your first match and how was that? Uh, so my first match was actually pretty cool because um, another promotion is running the same armory that I wrestled my first match in. And I didn't even actually realize it was the same building until actually it would have been last weekend. Uh, we did a show down in Wilmington and they were like, yeah, no, this is the same armory. They just, they just renovated it. But my first uh, wrestling match would have been February of, we started, it would have been February of, 2001 and um it was for accw joe wheeler's promotion okay. um and i wrestled a guy named mark ash they had a tv so my first match was like for a low on a local tv program i think i did two matches that night but um it was one of those opportunities where you know being in the ring with somebody that had been around for a while but didn't have the level of training that you know i was fortunate enough to have at that time so um it really was a good test for me to kind of uh show people uh my ability to lead and follow in the wrestling ring so to speak so um definitely one of those matches that you know it wasn't the best first match but it wasn't the worst either right but it was definitely a, a lifelong memory too all right well i'm gonna I'm going to say we talked about this last actually on through chat. I'm going to laugh at this. Uh, I learned today not to trust what Google says, what not to trust what Cage Match says, not to touch trust what Wikipedia says, because I thought your signature move was the Holy Ghost. I don't, that's what it says. So can you tell us about your, your signature move and how it came about and stuff like that? So it's called the Backpack Stunner. And um, actually, I had done some stuff with uh, Jay Briscoe. I'd been on a couple events with Jay Briscoe. And he was doing a version of the backpack. And um, it was just one of those moves. It wasn't really a finisher or anything like that. But and the way he kind of set it up was, you know, again, it was a move to kind of like change the tide of the match, so to speak. But. Um, after kind of like adapting it and, and making it my own, that's when I really felt like I had something that I could work with. Um, but again, it's, I mean, it's very simple. Typically I just pop a guy up on my shoulders and I swing his legs around and catch him before he slides down off my back. And I just lock the head in and I sit down with him. So, you know, very similar to the, the stunner we all know and love. Um, but that simple little twist of actually wrapping the guy's legs around so that I'm not catching him while he's standing. I'm actually controlling the wrap and, and the actual finish itself. Well, how long did it take you to master that? That seems complicated. Um, well, you, the, the basics of the move um, were 
were pretty simple. It was literally just, you know, walking through it. And I tried a couple different setups until I found the one that I felt worked best for me. Okay. And like I said, just that, that shoulder setup, almost like it, you know, again, you got Lesnar, the F5 and, you know, John Cena's uh, finish. Uh, a lot of guys have used the shoulder load to kind of set up and make okay. the look, the, the move look more uh, devastating. And again, at the time when I started doing it, um, I was pretty big, uh, you know, between like 260, 270. So it just made it look that much more impressive for a really big guy just to pop somebody up in the air and, right. you know, kind of manhandle them into that, that actual finish itself. Okay. Um, we know, I know we talked about favorite match or the first match, but matches and other than other stuff in the business, what would you say are your career highlights? Not just matches, but you're, I'm so proud of this. So I can think of two, two moments that really just, um, really just meant the world to me. Um, I did a, I've got another really good friend. Um, he wrestled as the bounty hunter, Cowboy Willie Watts. Um, torn up the road with him several times over the past 24 years. But um, we had a chemistry because of our friendship outside of the ring that and every, every so often, I think every wrestler has that one or two guys that, they can push each other just a little bit harder. And we all know, you know, every, the, the cats out of the bag, the secrets released. Um, yes, there is some planning that goes into wrestling matches. Yes, there is a predetermined finish, but with him in particular, we could go just a little bit beyond, uh, and hit each other a little bit harder. Um, we, we trusted each other. We respected each other and we knew where the boundaries were. And so anytime we had a match, we would just, it would really just be a hard hitting uh, extravaganza, so to speak. But uh, we did this match for a uh, softball team. They used to do this annual fundraiser at a school in Seagrove, North Carolina. And we were booked to, to wrestle each other that night. And the special thing about the match is it was supposed to be a bounty match. And the, the storyline was that, you know, this, uh, this manager had a, I don't know if it was a thousand dollars or $5,000, whatever it was in this briefcase. And um, he was actually managing the guy that I was wrestling. And the whole point was whoever beat me up that night, whoever beat me, um, could get the the $5,000 he was holding on to. And Harley was a part of the match and he actually was my second. So one to have Harley race standing in your corner yeah. uh, as a manager, but again, just being in the presence of Harley race <laughs> yeah. was one of those, you know, that's a dream come true for anybody. So we go through the whole match and it was a two out of three falls match. I actually ended up winning the match and um, Harley had just had back surgery. And the plan was that once the match was over, 
the the manager got on the mic was like if my guy couldn't get it done i'll give this money to anybody in the locker room that can come out and take this money and so they filed out the locker room one by one i'm dropping guys putting guys down and the whole whole deal was that because harley had just had this back surgery i was going to roll out of the ring so harley could give me the big punch and uh he could take the bounty well we talked about it beforehand and again it was he just had surgery there's no way he could get in the ring and as the match finished harley said don't get out of the ring at the end i'm coming into you and harley made the decision and he told me afterwards he was he said i was so impressed with what you guys did he was like I wanted to pay that respect to you and get in the ring and do this with you. So to have somebody like Harley Race say, doesn't matter what my doctors told me, I'm going to come in there and, and do this in the rightful place was, was an honor. You like, I can't even put words to. So yeah, Harley Race rolls in the ring and turned that hall of fame ring around and gave me that, that big punch. And uh, yeah, that, so that's one situation that definitely will be a, a lifelong memory for me. And probably the other one that, that sticks out is um, I had done some stuff with TNA while they were still filming in Nashville. Okay. And so my first opportunity, once they were in Orlando, uh, Bill Barron's called me, said, hey, got a spot for you. And I remember telling the, the guys, like, talking to Helix, talking to AJ, um, I said, man, if there's one guy that I could have this first match, you know, here in Orlando with, it would be abyss, right? Just just throwing it out there right. into the universe, so to speak. And sure enough, we get there and hey, you're you're with Abyss tonight. Um and you know, they they kind of gave me the rundown of what they wanted. And um I threw some ideas out there and they were like, yeah as long as we see this and this, this, and this from abyss and you take the big finish, that's, that's all we can do. So we literally built the match off of his signature moves that they wanted to see huh? because he was such a big guy. Yeah. Um, the idea was, um, was going to kind of do like that Sean Stacy act, like too dumb to not realize you just got yourself in a bad situation. Because okay. everybody up to the point that had wrestled Abyss, like they were all scared out of their boots. You know, they're shaking on the entryway. And I just asked, I said, hey, can I be that one guy that runs down there to my to my death instead of being the coward that's like, I'm not sure about this? Like, sure, let's do it. So I hit the ring and we started small. I hit him, didn't do anything. So I kicked him, didn't do anything. Literally, we just stacked all these these strikes up to the point to where like I finally, when it was time for him to, to lay into me, I threw my whole body at him and, and we just went, but everything, I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better opportunity that night and get back to the back. And as I'm walking through the curtain, Bill Barron's looks at me and says, if that didn't get you a job, I don't know what will. Wow. And so to hear something like that from somebody that's done, so much for the business it was so much of an intricate part of what was going on at the time. Um, that was just one of those things where 
you finally feel like you've arrived when when somebody that that knows says something like that to you. So that's definitely one of those moments. Absolutely, man. I have a moment. I don't. You mind if I share a cool moment that just happened to me like last two weeks ago? Absolutely. So I'm doing this podcast, you know, and you we do we interview lots of people, and I mean, to sit in front of you is just I'm humbled and it's amazing, and um, and I. I get this, I'm doing this podcast and Herb Simmons from SICW from up in St. Louis. He's been in the business for 51 years. He's been with Harley races, the Bruder, Bruiser Brodies, the Von Erics and stuff like that. He calls me up. He texts me and says, can I call you after the, after your podcast? I said, sure. And so he calls me up and he says, you know who Barbara Goodish is? Cool. I've heard her name, you know, and I'm like, okay, yeah, it's, you know, Bruiser Brody's wife, you know, of course. And, He's passed. Yeah. Um, you know, he goes, there's been five or six people that have wanted to interview Barbara Goodish. She's coming up to uh, St. Louis in this end of this month. And he says, I want you to have the opportunity to be the first one to interview Barbara Goodish. Do you want to do that? I'm like, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, so he goes, he goes, you got, you don't understand. He goes, I don't, he told me, he goes, you don't understand how big, how good you are and how your name is up in the St. Louis area. He goes, keep on doing what you do. And he goes, and that's the, he goes, that's the only reason why I wanted to call you to give you the first opportunity. I'm like, heck yeah. That's awesome. So I'm a little bit nervous going into this. Cause I'm like Bruiser Brody's wife. I'm like, Oh man, you know, but you know, I'm just keep on doing my, what I'm doing. I, you know, I, I prepare myself and we'll go on. So. Yeah, that's just, it's just to hear that stuff. Like you said, dude, be in the ring with Abyss and be that to have you be able to walk, run down there and, you know, that's, that's incredible, man. That's just so cool. Um, So challenges and overcoming adversity. I know this might lead into a long story, but I was told I was told to give you the time to do this. So I'm going to do that. Um. Wrestling often comes with challenges and injuries. Can you share some obstacles you faced? I know there was a car accident that happened that changed your life, that it was amazing. So if you could share that story, please, man, take your time doing it. I'd love to hear it. So it actually started, the, the setup for that, that, that moment started in 2011. Um, you know, I spent the first, 10, 11 years of my, my wrestling career focused on making it to the big time. Um, you know, I'm one of the, the long list of guys that I'm sure could say this, um, where again, uh, I had Dusty Rhodes tell me, um, you're not going to do any more jobs. Uh, we're getting ready to put you on paper and it's time to start doing different things with you. Uh, Johnny Ace uh, told me after uh, a dark match for WWE, um, give us two, three months, we'll get you to Louisville. Now, those things never panned out. And there were situations that involved other wrestlers. Um, you know, the, the writing on the wall just wasn't there. And when I think about it now, I truly believe that me not ever signing a contract with the, the two big companies at the time was, was part of God's plan for me. Um, that I was allowed to experience 
what it's like to wrestle in a WWE ring. I, I was allowed to experience what it was like to to wrestle for for TNA, you know, other major promotion. And um, actually one of the few guys that has actually gotten a payday from WWE and TNA in the same week. And that's the good thing about being an independent guy. Um, but actually being under contract was, like I said, I just don't believe that it was in God's plan for me. But I've always believed that everywhere I wrestle, no matter how small a promotion, no matter how small a building, no matter how many fans are in the crowd, that's the most important match of my life. And that promotion is the place to be in that moment. Uh, I've never believed in using promotions as stepping stones to get somewhere else. So I've always treated everywhere I've gone like that's what making it is. And I think that's one of the lessons I learned from rest, you know, watching wrestling as a kid in the armory shows and, and growing up on those smaller venues. And again, to be able to wrestle in front of five people and wrestle in front of 10, 15,000 people, those are opportunities that I'll never, you know, I've experienced them. They'll always be there for me. But again, I just, I think God had different plans for me. So that really kind of started coming to fruition about 2011. Um, my company had moved me down to Augusta, Georgia, and I was, you know, working at a gym uh, on Fort Gordon, the military base there. And I came home uh, from, from the gym one night and I turned on the BET Music Awards. And I grew up uh, in, you know, when, when rap music and R&B was like really big in the eighties and heavy D and the boys were, were like one of my favorite performers. I like, you know, they did all the cool dance moves and cool songs and they got all the girls and stuff like that. And this was actually a replay of that award show, but it just so happened to be right after he passed away. And so I was watching to see his last live performance and they do this thing where they have um, artists from, from different places freestyle. And so there was an artist that performed. I had no idea who he was, uh, goes by the name of Lecrae. And he was performing on this show and his verse was so counterculture to everything that everybody else was talking about in their verses. And I stopped for a minute and I'm like, wait a minute, this guy is something. Like I was really impressed by his, his performance, you know, his, his, his wording, his phrasing, the whole nine, very creative. And so I'm like, I want to, I'm going to watch that again. So because it was a replay, it was already on YouTube. I went back and listened to it on YouTube and I said, wait a minute, this guy's a Christian, right? And, and everything in his verse, he, he did everything but say he was a Christian. But when you heard what he was saying, there's no doubt that you could mistake who he represented and what he was trying to communicate. And so in that moment, I kind of felt this little thump on the back of my head, so to speak. Um, And as plain as day, I heard a voice and it said, if he can do that on that stage, then you can do that on the stage I've given you. Mm. And I knew in that moment that I was talking to God. And I said, but God, I cuss like an airborne ranger. 
And at the time, aside from, you know, working in the gym, I was doing club security. I've done security for national level recording artists, um, done their escort, their state, uh, close personal protection, stuff like that. Um, and so I guess it's safe to say that my playlist at the time wasn't, you know, the best. Uh, and I heard again, like his, his response to, I cussed like an airborne ranger was garbage in garbage out. My iPod sitting on my bed next to me. I'm like, but God, what am I going to listen to at the gym tomorrow while I'm working out? I just showed you. So I picked up my iPod and I cleared probably close to 1100 songs off my iPod. And, you know, again, fast forward, but then I'm going to rewind. So again, the next day I found a bookstore that, that sold Christian music on my way to work. So I stopped and grabbed a couple things. And once I got to work, I downloaded, put them on my iPod. But now going back to that night. So after he, he kind of told me, hey, garbage in, garbage out. I said, but God, I can't remember the last time I opened the Bible or went to church. You want me to use wrestling to talk about Jesus? Like, I'm, I don't even have the tools for that. Well, this is a Tuesday night. You drive by a sign to and from work every day. Bible study, 8 o'clock Wednesday night. The next day, it's Wednesday. Okay, I guess I'm going to Bible I guess I'm going to Bible study tomorrow. And then the third, my third argument was, but God, there's not a wrestling promoter on the planet. And at the time, I, I didn't know about CWF. Okay. Um, and, and they'd been up and running. I just didn't know about them. And I said, but God, there's not a wrestling promoter on the planet that's going to want me to body slam somebody, jump off the top rope in a pair of spandex type and jump up and start talking about Jesus. And again, as plain as day, just wait for the phone to ring. About 45 minutes later, my phone rang. And it was a promoter calling me. Uh, he just started a promotion. I actually knew him because he had worked with another promotion that I'd spent quite a bit of time with in North Carolina. He said, hey, I've uh, got some shows coming up. We'd like to bring you in. This is kind of what we want to do. And I said, well, can I? can I t share something with you right quick? And I told him exactly what I just experienced like 45 minutes before that. And he said, Oh, you want to come share your testimony after the, after your match? Why not? It's the perfect time. It's the main event. The show's over stage is yours. And so I got off the phone with him and I got down on my knees and, and I just said, God, you win. No matter how much it hurts, I'll serve you. And so um, the first year that I made that commitment to use wrestling as a platform to, to share the gospel and to, to be a positive light, um, my bookings doubled. The second year, I started getting invited to speak to youth groups, uh, church services on Sunday. My bookings, like I said, tripled at this point. The third year and the fourth year, so on and so forth. Um, and from 2011 to 2015, before the accident, um, I was probably the, my most success, successful time in wrestling. Um, you know, nothing on TV, nothing for, you know, any major promotions, just opportunity after opportunity to wrestle in front of people and 
walk and talk my faith out through wrestling and um, through these opportunities to speak. And um, in August of 2015, uh, August 25th, going back to the 23rd of August, I wrestled on a outreach show in a, at a church called All Seasons in Forest, Mississippi and wrestled in the main event that night. And then I was the key speaker for this, this outreach event. So after my match, um, I did a gospel presentation and a sermon, um, got my car, drove home several states. And again, this accident could have happened while I was driving the vehicle, any, any, anywhere, anytime on the interstate from, you know, again, between Mississippi and North Carolina. Made it home safe. Everything's good. Um, like I said, uh, August 25th, I'd started riding my bicycle back and forth to work just so I could get extra cardio. Even though I worked at a gym, I was doing cardio at the gym. Um, I rode my bike 12 miles to work and 12 miles home from work every day. And again, it was all about being in the best shape possible. It was you know, a training opportunity for me. So I'd left work in about 5.45. Um, actually was supposed to have left earlier that day, but um, one of my trainers had asked me to meet them at one of our other gyms on base to have a conversation. And of course, she was late for the meeting. I stayed until she got there. We had the meeting and got on my bike to head home. And where my accident took place, it was actually right by the, the core headquarters on Fort Bragg, maybe five minutes from the hospital on Fort Bragg. Um, but I was riding up to an intersection and um, there was a van parked in, or not parked in the center lane, but like in the center lane waiting across. And the van driver waved me through the intersection. So as I'm pedaling through the intersection, uh, there was a car coming around the curve that the van driver couldn't see. And I couldn't see either because of the way the road was laid out. And so right after I came across the, the front of the van, I see black and silver. Mm. And I realized that's a car tire and that's a car. So, um, cl collided with the car. It shot me out into the intersection. Actually, when I landed, I looked up and I was in the oncoming traffic lane. It threw me probably a good 15, 20 feet. Jeez. And I tried to stand up and I felt, felt some pain in my midsection. I tried standing up and my right leg was just like, it didn't do anything. So I laid back down. I said, God, if you're not going to do something amazing with this, just let me get up now. And just like he spoke to me four years prior, he's, I heard his voice playing his days again. Just lay there. I got you. And then, so I laid back down, made a couple phone calls, texted a few people. Um, I actually had a, a, a match scheduled for the next weekend. And uh, Lodi and Gunner, we were going to go speak at a um, military uh, boys school 
um, we got invited to, to do a gospel presentation at this, this military academy for um, high school age kids. And so they were one of the first people I reached out to. Hey, guys, uh, just had a little accident, a little bit. Uh, not sure how this weekend's going to go, but I'm going to do my best to be there. You know, like I said, I'm, I'm not thinking what's really wrong with me. I'm just thinking, all right, God's got a plan for this. I got to start, you know, making sure everybody knows I'm going to be okay. It's just, it's, it's temporary. And um, as I'm laying there, you know, I, like I said, I sent, I sent out a few messages and I heard his voice again. And it was, you remember four years ago, you said, no matter how much it hurts, I'll serve you. I'm telling you this because I want you to know this past four years, these opportunities to go and speak and to share the gospel were to prepare you for this moment. So again, a lot of people in ministry will say they're doing the Lord's work and understand if you truly believe in God, you understand there's nothing you or I can do that can hold a candle to what he's capable of. And so when you have that moment where you realize like, I had these opportunities to go in and share my faith and to spread the word, but it was to prepare me and my faith to be strong enough to know that in that moment, I was gonna be okay. So, just like he taught me all these lessons throughout my entire life in this moment, I learned what answering that call four years prior truly saved my life. And so um, about that time, the guy that was driving the vehicle that I landed in front of, uh, he had gotten out of his vehicle and run over to me and I knew something was wrong on the inside and because of how my leg was responding i told him i said tie my legs together because i knew i knew it was in a part of my body that like again there's arteries and stuff like that so some of that military training kicked in too like i've got to i've got to lock this down so that i don't cause any more damage to myself so he took off his belt um strapped my legs together about that time the ambulance got there and I'm still laying in the road while they're kind of deciding how they're going to move me. And I can hear the ambulance drivers off to the side. One, they're calling the hospital that's five minutes from where we're at. And um, I hear them and they're actually betting that I broke my pelvis. And um, they were right. <laughs> but I also heard the hospital come back over the radio and say, don't bring him here, take him downtown. And you would think that a hospital on a military base would have higher than a, a level two trauma center. Well, right. that's all they've got. So they take me down to Cape Fear Hospital and I'm in the ice and in the uh, emergency room and they've done a couple x-rays, a couple scans and stuff like that. Next thing you know, my kids walk in the room and at the time I didn't realize it, but um, there's only, a, there's a certain age that they'll allow kids into an emergency room and they were 
well, well younger than that age. And I also found out after the fact, the reason why they would let them in the room is because they didn't think I was going to make it. And so, again, no one's told me, like, we don't think we're going to save you. But just the symbolism of finding out why they let my kids in the room, because they didn't think they could save me. And all I could think is, oh, my kids are here. Well, if this is it, then I'm happy because here they are. So got to, you know, hug my kids and, you know, went too much longer after that. They came in and said, look, we've got to get you to Chapel Hill because we can't fix you here. But here's the problem. The helicopter is out on another, another call. So the only way to get you there is to strap you to the backboard, put you in an ambulance, and they're going to do about 120 miles an hour to get you to Chapel Hill. And, of course, they still hadn't cleared my spine. They still hadn't cleared my brain for TBI or anything like that. So up to this point, there was no medication or anything like that. It was just grin and bear. And so as they're, they're getting ready to transport me, they roll me out into the ambulance bay. And there's two guys standing next to the ambulance. And, you know, again, I'm assuming one's going to ride in the back and the one's going to ride in the front. Well, I know, I know that, again, this was an opportunity for God to kind of show how he works. But I just remember looking at the shorter of the two guys and said, hey, if you guys are driving me, I want him to ride in the back with me tonight. <laughs> and turns out he was actually the driver. And he was like, well, normally I, I, I drive. And, you know, so him and the, the bigger guy, they kind of looked back and forth. I said, like, I don't know why, but I really believe you're supposed to ride in the back with me tonight. And so finally, like, okay, no problem. So he gets in the back with me, and um, we start talking. Just, you know, just a casual conversation. And, again, I know where I got the strength to have that conversation from. But it was one of the easiest conversations I've ever had, you know, talking about family, talking about what we do when we're not in an ambulance. Um, and he shared with me that he had been struggling because he actually lived down in Wilmington and was driving back and forth to Fayetteville every day to work as an EFT while he finished up his nursing degree. And he had a baby on the way and it was just, it was taking a toll on him. Mm-hmm. So, um, I prayed with him, shared the gospel with him and just, again, saw an opportunity to, to, to leave some hope and, it, it also helped kind of take my mind off of what I was going through in the moment too. But um, so that was, again, that was a godsend moment where again, God gave me something to kind of take me out of my situation and focus on somebody else. Absolutely. So then when I get to Chapel Hill, they have me in the emergency room there and um, there they have the, the curtains around me and I can hear in the, the, kind of the booth next to me, this whole family, they're just, I mean, they're wailing. And um, the chaplain had stopped by and to check on me. And while the chaplain's talking to me, asking me if I want prayer, 
I'm like, how about if we pray for them over there? Because it sounds like they're going through a lot more than I am right now. And so, and again, another opportunity. So myself and the chaplain, we're actually praying for, don't know if it was a man, don't know if it was a woman, but we're just praying for this family next to me. Because um, again, you know, it's pretty eminent they're about to lose a loved one. So from there, they kind of get me settled in, they get me in a room and for the rest of the night, I'm going through these series of scans. Like they're checking to see if my bladder's punctured, where the internal bleeding is, how severe the, the break is the whole night. And uh, about five o'clock that morning, uh, they come in, they're like, all right, we found a puncture in your bladder. We've got to get you to ER really quick. And Lodi, had actually driven all the way up from Charlotte to be there at the emergency room at Chapel Hill with me. Uh, and another good friend of mine, a pastor, he's now uh, pastoring a church out in Indiana, David McManus. He came up from Fayetteville. And so they're there with me as they're getting ready to take me into surgery. And we stopped the, the, the surgical team. Hey guys, before we do this, can we just pray? And so myself, Lodi, Pastor Dave, and the whole surgical team that's, that's getting ready to do this procedure on me, they're holding hands around my bed. And man, if those two men didn't pray up that surgical team, I, I can't even put words to that prayer. And take me in the emergency room, everything, or take me in surgery. Um, I come out of surgery, I'm in the, the recovery room and doctor comes in and says, hey, I just wanna let you know, we put you back together. Now, the, the injury from the accident was an open book pelvic fracture. Mm -hmm. And basically an open book pelvic fracture is where the pubic bone in the front comes completely apart. And then I actually had complete right side separation in my back at the SI joint. So, the right side of my hip, um, just off of my spine, completely had detached in the back and in the front. And the mortality rate for an injury like this is four out of 10. Like four out of 10 people that have this injury don't even make it to the hospital. They typically bleed to death before they even get there. Um, so they were, he said, hey, I put you back together. And oh, by the way, I fixed your hip that was already broken previously uh, as well. And as soon as he said that, like I knew that I had done something on my hip a few years prior to that, mm -hmm. uh, but I just kind of ignored it and worked through it. But when he said, hey, I, I fixed your hip that was already broken too. Um, and then the next thing he said after that was, I do have to tell you this, he said, if, if you walk again, it will take at least a year. And he told me, he said, you will never wrestle again. Dang. And I looked at him and I said, doc, I got to know how much of a head start do you have? You said a year, but how much time before I can try? So you can't do anything for three months. And just going to kind of give you an idea how, how good of a brother Lodi is. He was like, I'm taking you to Charlotte. You're staying at my place. I'm going to help you recover. 
So go to Charlotte. Um, again, I can't really do anything. I'm in a, like if I'm up and moving around, I'm in a wheelchair, I'm using crutches. Can't put any weight on my leg. Um, he had a few friends that, that had some um, therapeutic experience. So I got some, some physical therapy and um, tried, tried a couple different things. So I went for my third month checkup. Um, the doctor made me do a rock test after doing a couple bone scans. And I passed the rock test. And he said, look, if you want to try walking, you can go ahead and try and walk. Just take it easy. So as soon as I got the okay to try walking in, I called my boss. Hey, look, I haven't been able to work for three months. I, the doctor told me I could start walking again. I can use my crutches for the time being. I got to come back to work. So maybe I think it was like a day or two later uh, after getting the clearance, um, I went back to work and I walked in the gym on my crutches. And um, There's an older lady that's been working out at that gym probably going on 40 years now. But I had known her since I was stationed at Fort Bragg in the military. Mm-hmm. And so, again, just going back there and working as a civilian after getting out, I kind of maintain that relationship with her. But I walk in on my crutches and she's like, what are you doing on those crutches? I'm like, well, I had an accident. It's like, I know, but what are you doing on the crutches? It looks like you're supposed to be walking. And uh, I said, yeah, well, the doctor did tell me I could go ahead and start trying. She's like, well, you got a week. And so, you know, not want her to one-up me. I'm like, give me three days. And I went home that night and I was like, why am I going to wait three days? So I put my crutches down and I walked down my hallway. It was mm. the worst thing you'd ever seen in your life, but I did it. And I was like, Praise all God. right, so now keep in mind, it was three months and six month checkups. Well, my three month checkup was actually a few days before the three month mark. And I got cleared to, to start walking again. And then my six month checkup was actually a week or two early from that six month checkup. So I go for that six month checkup. Now, by this time, I'd already started lifting weights again. Um, I was trying to do box jumps and again, just really just focused on getting better. So when I go for my six month checkup, I've got a video of me doing box jumps. I showed him my doc. He's like, you know, I really wish you would have asked me about that first, but you know what? No problem. So they do my bone scans, all that stuff. He said, look, I don't suggest this, but your bone scans came back and your bone density is actually stronger than it was before your accident. And from everything I can see, there's not going to be issues with the plates and screws. So if you want to go back to that crazy life, you can go ahead and start wrestling again. Wow. So now keep in mind, he told me if I walked, it would take me at least eight months. Told me I'd never wrestle again. Right. And at six months, I was walking. Well, actually, you know, three months in a couple of days, I was walking. And at six months, I was lifting weights, working out, doing box jumps. And my doctor says, if you want to wrestle again, you can. Dang. So I waited, I waited two months, actually went and did a little bit of wrestling training just to make sure that, you know, I wasn't going to be super, super rusty getting back in the ring. At the eight-month mark, I had my first match back from an injury that, again, one, should have cost me my life. Two, there was some very hard, very strong, you'll never do this again um, 
And again, it really didn't have anything to do with the training that I was doing. It didn't have anything to do with my physical makeup. It all came down to trusting God and knowing that he was going to guide me through this. And so, again, when you go back to the very beginning, the first thing I said was, God, if you're not going to do something amazing with this, just let me get up now. And again, he said, just lay there. I got you. And sure enough, he did something beyond amazing. And so, again, um, you know, when you when you look at the big picture of things, like God doesn't need me to be a professional wrestler and talk about Jesus because all we're called to do as men is to follow our savior, Mm -hmm. you know, accept him as our Lord and savior and follow him, love everybody, um, treat people with respect. And again, just, you know, give your heart and your mind to, to him. And so for, for him to allow me to get back in the wrestling ring after an accident like that, that he'd allowed me to use wrestling as a platform in, in order for me to, to grow and study and, and strengthen my faith. Um, again, it, nothing about my calling to serve or the recovery process really had anything other to do with me other than just believing in him knowing that he was going to have the, the answer and that he was going to provide a way. Wow. And so again, when I look back now, you know, the accident was eight years ago and here I am, I'm 50 years old. I'm still able to compete at a high level. Um, I'm still able to have some really good wrestling matches and, you know, at my age alone to be able to maintain the physical condition that I'm in. Um, but then also to have gone through that accident, that injury, uh, and come out the other side with, you know, nothing more than a limp when it rains or, you know, a long car ride and, and know that again, God has had a plan for me my whole life. And it, all it took was for me to answer that calling. And he's done the rest. Amen. Wow. That's impressive. That's amazing. Praise God for that. That's, thank you. I don't have words except for praise God, man. Oh my gosh. Wow. JT was right. He said that, let him go. Let him him tell it because I'm like, so um, I got some people popping in. Adrian Whisper, I don't know if you know who he is. He knows who you are. He says. Absolutely. We actually, uh, we, we actually had a brief run as the tag team champions at Virginia Championship Wrestling 20 years, a little over 20 years ago. Yeah, well, I can tell you a little bit of the story about Adrian Whisper. Okay. I live in the panhandle of Florida. And I I get I was getting irritated that there's no wrestling promotions or WWE doesn't come down to Panama City or Pensacola. So I'm like, I'm never gonna see a WWE event. I'm never gonna go to whatever. Anyways, I'm flowing through Facebook, and I see this XIW, Extreme Impact Wrestling, Panama City. I'm like, oh, that's an hour away. <laughs> I'm like, so I, I found Adrian Whisper on the, on Facebook. I messaged him. I said, hey, this is my story. You know, I'm a foster parent. I run an emergency shelter. I've 
uh, six kids, eight kids. Um, how much does it cost? He says, bring them down. I'll cover it. And so I brought eight. I brought six of my foster kids down and my son and I went down there. And it was probably the most unforgettable night. I'll never forget that. That, that I'll never forget the independent wrestling event. And what I won't ever forget is Adrian's heart where he brought three of the kids into the ring themselves and he picked up two of my boys and showed them what, how a body slam felt, you know, and how to do it. And these kids thought that was the coolest thing ever. That chair you see behind me, behind that Michigan flag, that's a chair that was used in that event that the locker room signed for the, for me and for the kids. So, yeah. So, um, good guy, great promotion. It's awesome that you that now I know somebody that he wrestled. Now I know that he's not lying to me. <laughs> you, you said Panama City. Yeah. So I, I do want to share this right quick. Um, my only experience in Panama City or anywhere in that part of Florida mm-hmm. was at Camp Rudder, um, the the third phase of Ranger School. Okay. So <laughs> so I don't have too many fond memories of the Panama. City area. <laughs> I don't think that's a no. Yeah, you're right. So, but no, <laughs> friends of this Adrian um, says, tell him, tell him to hit me up. I want to bring him down to XIW. That would be epic, man. Yes, sir. I'd love to see him, man. We should make that. We need to make that happen, Adrian. We need to make uh, Scotty come down and um, be part of the XIW um, for whatever. So, yeah, man. That's cool. And so, so it's so cool. It's how full circle that is. But um, so I want to talk about uh, one of the interesting things that I didn't realize in the wrestling business. Talk about it. Talk to us about brotherhood and paying it back. I mean, I know you talked about Lodi being your best friend and your brother. And um, yeah. So what's brotherhood and paying it back mean to you? So. You know, professional wrestling, obviously Hulk Hogan made it, you know, one of the catchphrases, uh, you know, brother this, brother that, everything is brother, brother, brother. And it can be used loosely as a term of affection. Um, you know, again, you know, a lot of guys, it's, uh, you know, their intent isn't always the best when you're interacting with them, but you know, a, a, a good brother here and a brother there kind of like makes it all go away. But really when it comes to, to the brotherhood in professional wrestling, the, the true unadulterated brotherhood is when you walk into a locker room, right? And knowing that the guy that you're getting in the ring with, you're putting your life in that person's hands and knowing that the person that you're giving that to respects you enough to do the same for you. And, you know, there are politics in wrestling. Not everybody gets along. Not, not everybody has the best of intentions, but uh, for the guys that truly believe and respect the people that they share the ring with, uh, that opens the door for bonds (coughs) to be created. And ultimately, whether it's in wrestling or out of wrestling, and again, you know, I was adopted uh, ended up back in foster care as a teenager. And so I don't have any blood siblings, but between the military 
in wrestling um, allowed me to form friendships that transcend just being somebody's friend. Um, and so, you know, they say blood is thicker than water. Um, brotherhood is thicker than blood, in, in my, my opinion, because you don't have to be related to someone to give your life for them, to defend them, to be there for them in a time of need. But that's really what it comes down to is that somebody that, again, you know, it's unconditional. I trust you. I respect you. I love you as a family member. Uh, so that's, that's how I would say, that's how I break down brotherhood. And then as far as giving back goes, um, you know, I don't want to go off too much of a tangent, but right around the time, the time COVID hit, um, I started to kind of feel this tug away from wrestling. And, um, you know, I've, I've had a lot of great opportunities, um, been places a lot of guys haven't had the opportunity to go. Um, but I got to a point with wrestling that I started to kind of lose my love for it. And, um, because there were so many politics at the time and there was so much backstage drama going on at these different events. And when COVID hit, I saw that as an opportunity to just kind of like ride off into the sunset, you know, not trying to do a retirement match or leave on this big fanfare or anything like that. I just wanted to just kind of disappear. And so I got away with that for about a year and a half. Didn't watch wrestling, just completely just stayed away from it. You know, there's a few close friends that I had from wrestling. Again, guys that I would consider brothers that I kept in contact with. We didn't talk about wrestling. We didn't watch wrestling together. It was like literally just how are you doing? What's going on with your life? Let's hang out. Wrestling wasn't involved. Then I watched WrestleMania. And uh, it was one of those, probably one of the best WrestleManias that I can remember. Um, and it just made me go, hmm. And I started getting the itch again. And so I made a couple phone calls to a friend that, that runs a, um, a faith and, and charity community service-based promotion. Baron Bola, he runs uh, Wrestling With Purpose here in North Carolina. I reached out to him. And just said, hey, Baron, you know, I got the itch. I really don't want to come back and do a bunch of crazy stuff, but I'd love to come help out and do some, you know, some outreach and some charity stuff with you. Um, what do you think? And he was like, Oop, absolutely. So that was the start. And the thing about it is, is that time that I took off from wrestling, I got to a point where I realized I'm one of the older guys. And like I said, I'm, I'm 50 years old now. Um, I can still hang with the 20 year olds. Um, you know, I, I maintain my physical conditioning, um, so I can compete, but I wasn't coming back to chase the dream anymore. I wasn't coming back to try and get a job. I wasn't coming back to try and get signed or anything like that. And to be honest with you, when you're still competing with guys for jobs and slots, it's really hard to do anything other than be a positive role model or a mentor for them. Um, but to really try and push other people to the next level when you're trying to go the same place they are, yeah. it's, it's really hard to do. 
So again, like I said, my mindset was when I came back, I'm coming back to leave it better than I found it. And again, like I said, I'm not chasing exposure. You know, like I said, I've, I've wrestled here. I've wrestled there. I've wrestled in all the right places. Um, and I feel confident that I've made enough of a name for myself that I can just come back and leave something for these younger kids to follow. And so I truly think that one, you use wrestling as a platform to help other people outside of wrestling Two, that every locker room you're in, especially as an older veteran, somebody that's been, been places people are trying to go that you, you give them the tools and you give them the the keys to get there and ultimately it's every person's decision you take the advice or you don't yeah but again to um to be in a position to elevate other people uh, and again put them where they want to be that's that's what i would consider giving back when it comes to the locker room and the boys Awesome, man. I was having this idea when you were talking. They're, the XIW Tag Team Champions right now is Controversial Inc. I think you need to bring Lodi down with you to Panama City Beach and take them titles. <laughs> well, we, just, we travel. Huh? We do travel. There you go. I, Adrian Whisper, if you're still li- listening, man, make that happen, man. Um, Real quick, I got a few... Um, few questions from the CWF boys. I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. I reached out to the likes of Ron, Rob Vaughn, JT, Bam Bam, and all those guys, Barrett. One of these guys says, ask him this. Do you really hate Kenny Loggins? No, I don't. <laughs> but that that night was just one of those nights where you go, how much fun can we have on this show? And um, I'll never forget. I was on a at, a, at a show like early on in my career and they actually played that song, the, um, the danger zone song from top gun um, as a rib. They changed one of the wrestlers music out as a rib. And he's freaking out backstage. Like, that's not my music. That's like, that's your music. It's your match. You got to go. <laughs> and so I thought about it. And as we're kind of like putting that show together, I'm like, how can we make this as fun as possible? And because I always kind of wrestled as a good guy uh, with, with the Christian wrestling Federation, it was like, what can I do? That's so absurd to just annoy the people to the point to where they boo me. And I was like, why don't I throw a fit about my entrance music? And the first song that came to mind was the Kenny Loggins Danger Zone song. So, um, you love how the fans, how, how important are fans to you? And, um, have you had any like interesting interactions with fans while you're in a match? Um, prior to 2011, um, been in quite a few situations with fans that, again, you know, some are like fun and entertaining, but then some are like that could have been really dangerous or really scary. Mm-hmm. So there's a few of those. Um, but as far as how important fans are for wrestling, I mean, 
fans are the most important part of professional wrestling because one, if they weren't buying tickets, if they didn't love watching it, we wouldn't have a job. And again, when, when you take on the responsibility of using wrestling as a platform, um, to, to share the gospel and stuff like that, the fans are also extremely important because it's an opportunity to change somebody's life and to carry yourself in a way that somebody goes, there's something about that guy outside of a wrestling character. There's something about him that I gravitate towards. And then when they realize that it's, it's your faith and, um, and, and, and what you believe in and that foundation that you set your rock on, um, so, yeah, I mean, again, they're, in my opinion, they're the most important part of the wrestling business. Awesome. Thank you. Now, yeah, I told you I worked for foster kids, and I sat around the dinner table today, and I asked the kids they could have – right now I have five in the house. So I said, you have two questions. You can ask this, our, our guests two questions. And so they started <laughs> – so here we go. Real, real quick answers. What's your favorite food? Uh, steak. How much weight can you bench press? Um, the most I've ever benched is 415. Okay. But the older I get, the lighter the weight gets, and I'm all about reps now. All right. Favorite flavor of potato chips? Ooh. Flavor, sour cream, and onion. All right. Favorite color? Black or silver? Favorite wrestler of all time? Oh, wow. Favorite wrestler of all time? Well, my very first favorite wrestler was Tito Santana. Okay. Um, again, everybody else, I liked everybody. But then when I really got to a point to where, like, there was one guy that I just, like, that's the guy, Tito Santana, and then probably – Probably Roddy Piper would be uh, – he'd be on my Mount Rushmore for sure. Wayne – Damian Wayne says, I know this, dude. <laughs> yeah. I know Damian from SI – or from um, the XIW, so love the guy. Love the guy. We've shared the, the ring a few times over the years. Trying to connect with Damian um, with the promotion he's with now to get some of his guys on the, on the show. So um, hopefully that comes out. So favorite car? Favorite car? I'm a GMC guy. Huh? Favorite? Um, okay, sorry. GMC guy. Uh, probably my favorite car, though. Um, oof. Oof. I'm going to have to go with the Plymouth Roadrunner. Okay. Favorite snack? Ooh, um, grass-fed meat sticks. Okay. What's your least favorite and favorite school subject that you when you were in school? Favorite subject, uh, history. Mm -hmm. Least favorite, math. Okay. I don't know if I'm going to answer this question. I I'm just going to I'm going to tell you how it was written. First thing you do when you get up, I pray. 
That, that, yeah, that makes sense. Favorite TV show? Man, um, right now, I'd have to say probably Ted Lasso. Another one I just going to repeat what they said. Do you like Ray Mysterio? Yes, love Ray. I've actually uh, had the opportunity to spend a little bit of time with him, and he is everything uh, anybody could say about him. He is just a great dude. What do you do for work other than wrestling? Um, I, well, aside from um, my screen printing business that I run out of my garage, uh, I manage uh, or oversee the management of five different gyms uh, okay. for a company called Fit for Life Health Clubs. Okay. Favorite animal, and do you have a pet? Yes, I have a dog who is. Um, Part Staffordshire Terrier, Staffordshire Terrier and Bernice Mountain Dog. Okay. But my favorite, my favorite animal is monkey. I love monkey. monkey. Okay. Um, do you acknowledge the tribal chief? Wait, did he just say he's a pet monkey? He, he says he loves monkeys. Oh. Do I acknowledge the tribal chief? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I actually um, have a relationship with the Anawahi family outside of, of the ring that came through wrestling, but I, I consider them family. Awesome. That's cool. Um, I'm going to ask a question. I ask this question to everybody I interview. Um, you, you went through wrestling. You're familiar with WCW. Who is the the greatest WCW champion ever? Ooh. It'd have to be Flair. You're probably right, but the TikTok answer that went crazy on TikTok was David Arquette. David Arquette. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll give him credit. All right. All right. Now I know we're going long and I apologize. Uh, I have one more one more thing I need to we want I want to give you a chance to talk about because I think it's very important. It was very um very inspirational for me. Um, I, if I ever get to North Carolina, I would love to come by this place and, you know, be part of this at all sometime. So I got this clip I'd like to share that we can talk about this, okay? I'm not sure okay. if you saw it tonight, but we had the opportunity to speak in front of a great group of men here at the Weight Room Revival. If you don't know what the Weight Room Revival is, well, it's a little play on words. Don't wait to see what God does in your life before you start reaching out to Him. But most importantly, it was held in a weight room inside of a wrestling ring. Got a couple wrestlers talking about their love for Christ, but ultimately, again, it's all about helping other men be godly. I was extremely impressed with that. Um, can you tell us about that? Can you talk about the weight room arrival? So, this kind of goes back to um, after. The last time uh, Lodi and I did um, the WWE event together, we kind of went our own separate ways for a couple years. And, uh, you know, we had everybody has their own struggles. He was he was going through some things and um, I was going through some things. And when we reconnected right around that 2011 time time period, we had a conversation and uh and that's that's where we decided to to 
to form Team Fearless and start doing tag team matches again. But we had a a, a talk one day, and like I said, it had been a few years since we'd seen each other and really hadn't kept in much contact. And it just so happened that we both um, come to that moment where we knew that we we served a a higher power and that we'd we'd made the commitment to serve the Lord, um, except both it's accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Um, in that moment of realizing that, you know, again, you can go to church thousands of times and there's a big difference between truly developing a relationship with Christ and just going to church. But we both had that that aha moment, that wake up call. Like we're called to serve. So, again, we we formed Team Fearless and um, started again doing tag team stuff to to use the wrestling as a platform. But um, so this was Lodi's brainchild, the the weight room revival, and. Um, it's actually held at his gym in Charlotte, where it's also the home of the Team Fearless Wrestling Academy. Um, and he had one of those those conversations with God where like, he just felt God leaning on his heart to do this. So uh, he's been putting it off for a while, and finally he just got to the point where, like, like, I'm answering this call, we're doing it. And so he came up with the concept of doing the weight room revival. And what it is is it's a – it's a, a a meeting for men, and our goal is to um, share our testimony, share our faith, share a message, uh, and kind of help other men um, kind of make the commitment to be, you know, more godly. Uh, and again, it's just kind of help God, you know, men live a godly life and. Um, be proud of what we believe in and not be afraid to share our faith. And again, just kind of connect with people through our story um, and make sure that people understand, like, it doesn't matter where you find your testimony, whether it's at rock bottom, you're treading water, you're in the penthouse. In in each of those three incident, inc- incidents or instances, your testimony has no greater value. You can be on top of the world and realize something's missing. You can be treading water, begging somebody to throw you a life raft, or you can be at rock bottom where there's nothing good in front of you. There's nothing good behind you. They might as well just go ahead and start piling dirt on top of you. And that moment where you accept that love of God in your life, um, it's not always an easy journey. And so to be able to connect with other men and say, hey, look, this is where I came from. This is what I've been through. This is where I'm at now. And this is where I'm going to inspire and motivate and encourage other men to not run from the commitment, not be afraid of what they believe in, and ultimately just know that, again, God loves them. Well, well, Scotty, I will say this. I really appreciate you coming on the show tonight. I mean, we have we could sit here talking for I'm sure hours. 
Uh, I mean, it's been an inspiration to me to hear your story. And um, again, I will say this every every Monday, it's CWF Monday, and it's <laughs> what I thought was just to be a podcast of hearing wrestling stories has turned into a life changing thing for me. And I appreciate you sharing and being so such a great man of God and being so inspirational. So I thank you for coming on the show. Um, I well, I'm I'm gonna keep on bugging Adrian Whisper to reach out to you, or you reach out to Adrian Whisper. I think it'd be cool to finally be able to meet you in person. I mean, I sit across the screen from you. That's just great. Uh, but I would love to meet you in person. I would. You need to bring your bring your tag team t- partner with you, and um, I think Fearless Team Fearless could take out the controversial link. That's just that's all I'm saying. <laughs> I would hope Adrian Whisper would listen to this um, and make it happen. Um, I I can't say enough about the 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 man that you are. You are better. You're a great guy. So um, I'm going to give you the opportunity to tell people where they can see you, what's happening in the like, what's going to be going on in the near future. Uh, Adrian Whisper says he's on it. Uh, good thing, Adrian. I appreciate it. Uh, so I'm going to let Scotty Matthews tell you where you can find his find him, how you can follow him, what's going to happen here in the near future with Scotty. And I'm going to play a song, but please don't go anywhere. Stay in the green room. I'm, I want to talk to you after the show's over. So, Mr. Matthews, the floor is yours. Um, probably the best place to find me is on Facebook right now. I do have an Instagram account, but um, I don't use it very much. Uh, just Scott Matthews, 1T and Matthews on Facebook. Um, I've got, I think my next date is in Pembroke, North Carolina for Wrestling With Purpose. Uh, for Baron Bullard uh, at the Rescue Squad. Um, then after that, um, working with Caprice Coleman for uh, Bubba, Bubba Amick Promotions. Um, they are uh, their events are right on the the other side of the North Carolina border from Charlotte. They're in South Carolina. Um, but yeah, just. Check me out on Facebook. I, I normally post dates and posters when they come up. Um, you can message me uh, on Facebook. Uh, by then, I should have my stuff together and, and actually remember what my Instagram account is. Um, you can probably find me on a golf course if I'm not in a wrestling ring on a Saturday. Right. Uh, Trying to play golf as much as possible. Uh, hard to believe it took me 45 years to actually have a hobby. Uh, <laughs> that uh, I'm pretty passionate about, but I love golf. Uh, so promoters, uh, you throw a round of golf in 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 the booking. Uh, just let me know I'm there. Um, right. We have yeah. some, we have some great um, golf courses around Panama City. I'm just saying. Oh yeah, no, I, uh, that's that's one of my jokes. Now I try and travel with golf clubs all the time. You know, wrestling. Yeah. They say never leave home without your wrestling gear. Yeah. Well, now I have my golf bag and my gear bag in my in my vehicle. There you go. There you go. So, huge pop wrestling podcast fans. We had Scotty Matthews on the on the podcast. Thank you so much for your um, stories, Scotty. Uh, thank you for the fans that watched. Thank you for all these guys that went in the chat. Keep on a lookout for every. It seems like every day, huge pop wrestling podcast has a show on. We love you guys. Hit the subscribe button, follow button. Um, and uh, we'll see you next time. And don't go anywhere, Scotty. All my dogs, make some noise up in this house.
was in the house Who was in the house It's the gangster of destruction So you know what's going down And when the drive-by's coming Then you better hit the ground Cause when your body hits a canvas Then your head is knocked out Who was in the house Who was in the house It's the gangster of destruction So you know what's going down And when the drive-by's coming Then you better hit the ground Cause when your body hits a canvas Then your head is knocked out Fight with Adrian Whisper It's like a fight with the devil Because when he didn't with you You cannot get on this level Fight with Adrian Whisper It's like a fight with a king It's like a fight with an army They got the tanks and everything He's leaving bruises and stitches Possibly leaving you crippled Cause when he sets up the table And sends you straight through the middle Six a decree Beat that ass with a light bulb Leave a piece of glass embedded In the back of your skull Who is in the house? Who is in the house? It's the gangster of destruction So you know it's going down And when the drive-by's coming Then you better hit the ground Cause when your body hits the canvas Then your ass is knocked out Who is in the house? Who is in the house? It's the gangster of destruction So you know it's going down And when the drive-by's coming Then you better hit the ground Cause when your body hits the canvas Then your ass is knocked out